ladies and gentlemen and my biology aficionados. It's such a pleasure to present you with the first episode of my Intelligibly Biological Weekends podcast. We will be covering the whole IB biology syllabus on a higher level and standard level with great references to the IB syllabus so that you can listen to it as a revision before exams, evening or morning meditation or as a soundtrack to house chores. Basically, whatever you want, whenever you want. Today we are starting with the first topic, the cell theory and the characteristics of life. Welcome, sit back and relax. So, to start with, we need to state what the IB biology syllabus actually says about the topic. So, first of all, I will be making references to it every time we pursue a new topic. However, just so that you have a general idea of what they need from you. So, first of all, we have the understanding category, where you need to understand certain aspects of the topic. So, first of all, You've got, according to cell theory, living organisms are composed of cells. So that's point one. Second, organisms consisting of only one cell carry out all functions of life in that cell. Surface area to volume ratio is important in the limitation of cell size. Multicellular organisms have properties that emerge from the interaction of their cellular components. Specialized tissues can develop by cell differentiation in multicellular organisms. Differentiation involves the expression of some genes and not others in cell genome. The capacity of stem cells to divide and differentiate along different pathways is necessary in embryonic development and also makes stem cells suitable for therapeutic uses. So that's basically the whole topic we will be covering today, just so that you know what's coming. Moreover, we have a section in the IB syllabus that says applications and skills you need to possess. So, one of them being questioning the cell theory using atypical examples, including striated muscle, giant algae, and aseptiate fungal hyphae. As application, investigation of functions of life in paramecium, also use of stem cells to treat Stardgard's disease, and one other photosynthetic unicellular organism. Also, Ethics of therapeutic use of stem cells from specially created embryos, from the umbilical cord blood of a newborn baby and from named condition. Use of light microscope to investigate the structure of cell and tissues, withdrawing of cells. And also you need to know how to calculate the magnification of drawing and the actual size of structure. So that is basically what you need to know. However, if it all sounds very complicated, not to worry. I will be explaining it all and making a brief revision of what this topic actually covered. So, we have also every section of the IB syllabus and guide. We have guidance, which tells us that students are expected to be able to name and briefly explain these functions of life. Nutrition, metabolism, growth, response, excretion homeostasis and reproduction, so just the basics. 
Moreover, scale bars are useful as a way of indicating actual size in drawings and micrographs. So whenever you basically draw anything in biology, remember to use scale bars as they give you the general idea of how the size of drawing relates to its environment. So moreover, we in this topic have a section about stem cells and as we are internationally minded students here in IB we should notice that stem cell research has depended on the work of teams of scientists in many traditions that impact of the, on the work of scientists and the use of stem cells in countries who share results thereby speeding up the rate of progress. However, we should acknowledge that national governments are influenced by local cultural and religious traditions that impact on the work of scientists and the use of stem cells in therapy. Stem cells are very useful and we will be coming back to them later. So now let's begin with the actual topic. We should start with the steps of biological investigation. So our steps of biological investigation will basically describe what do we actually need to do when we perform some sort of experiment or a report in biology. It is also known as scientific method. It is absolutely essential when you write your reports or internal assessments from biology. So we should always start with an observation. So a great example would be Descartes won't start. So that's an observation we need to make. Afterwards, we move on to a question that we pose. So we ask ourselves, why doesn't Descartes start actually? Then we form a hypothesis that says Descartes' battery is dead. And that should be in form of a statement. Afterwards, we make a prediction of what will happen. A jump start will start the car. So we don't actually know if a jump start will start a car. However, we do want to check it in our experiment. So that's a prediction of what will happen after we perform the experiment. And then we test it. So we jump start the car. And we can have two results. So one result proves that, yeah, great, the car has started. And then that's awesome. We do some more tests, we repeat the experiment and then we can base and we can move on to conclusions. However, we can also happen that the car doesn't start up and then we need to propose a new hypothesis. So that's basically the steps of biological investigation. Pretty easy, isn't it? Now on to the main stuff of this topic, the cell theory. So, according to cell theory, all living organisms are composed of cells. And how do we actually know that? Because it's very important to understand the history behind the discovery of the cell theory and certain experiments in our biological history. So, actually, the decisive event that allowed the observation of cells was the invention of the microscope, obviously, in the 16th century. That's a long time ago. After which, interest in the invisible world was stimulated. So we have our English physicist, Robert Hooke, who described cork and other plant tissues in 1665 and introduced the term cell because the cellulose walls of dead cork cells reminded him of the blocks of cells occupied by monks. 
So then afterwards, we have a theory of German scientists, Theodor Schwann and Matthias Jakob Schleiden, which is in 1838, so quite a long time afterwards. And the theory says that all plants and animals are made up of cells, and it really marked a great conceptual advance in biology and resulted in a renewed attention to the living processes that go on in cells. However, that's not what we are talking about today. We should know, as IB learners, the principles of the cell theory. And those are, all organisms are composed of one or more cell. Second, cells are the smallest units of life. And third one, very interesting one, all cells come from pre-existing cells. And that was actually proven by a guy you might already know, Louis Pasteur and his birth experiment, which I will tell more about in a second. Actually, it contradicts the previously held theory of spontaneous generation, which you might also have heard of. And it claimed that complex life, like a mouse, might arise spontaneously and continually from a non-living matter. So there might be piles of dead somewhere on the street and then the rats will be born out of it. Crazy. However, that's how these scientists and people wanted to explain the various miracles of life. So back to our guy Pasteur. Actually, Pasteur attacked the problem of the spontaneous generation by using a very simple experimental procedure. He showed that beef broth could be sterilized by boiling it in a swan neck flask, which has a long bending neck that traps dust particles and other contaminants before they reach the body of the flask. So if the broth's um, neck was broken off, then the boiling broth would just expose to air and then the microbes would appear. However, if it was absolutely closed, sealed, then no microbes would appear and therefore it remained sterile and that actually contradicts the idea of spontaneous generation. So that's it, that's the cell theory. We do have many exceptions to cell theory and as a critical IB thinker you should know them. So in the IB syllabus we have a mentioning that we should question the cell theory by using atypical examples like straight muscle giant algae and aseptate fungal hyphae. So why actually are they the exceptions to cell theory? Okay, let me explain. So striated muscle fibers, as the name suggests, are muscles that are very long and very thin, and therefore they have multiple nuclei, despite being surrounded by a single continuous plasma membrane. It challenges the idea that cells always function as autonomous units with always one nuclei. When we move on to the fungal hyphae, so fungi have many filamentous structures called hyphae, which are separated into cells by internal walls called septa, and are not partitioned by septa, and therefore have a continuous cytoplasm along the length of the hyphae. Now it contradicts the theory that living structures are composed of discrete cells. When we move on to giant algae, certain species of unicellular algae may grow to very large sizes. And that changes the idea that larger organisms are always made of many microscopic cells. 
So those are the examples that you should know about. Now we move on to functions of life. It's absolutely vital for you to distinguish living organisms from non-living organisms. And one of the distinction can be that all living organisms, multicellular and unicellular, carry out functions of life. What are actually those functions? I will briefly describe them and list them. So, nutrition. It's pretty self-explanatory, obtaining food, providing energy and material needed for growth. Metabolism. Those are just the chemical reactions occurring inside the cell. Growth. That's an irreversible increase in size, in case you didn't know. Response or sensitivity can be both names. And that's perceiving and responding to changes in the environment. Homeostasis. And this relates to keeping conditions inside the organism within tolerable limits, so just stable limits. We all know that cells and living organisms hate chaos, and that's why we have homeostasis. Reproduction, producing offspring, with either sexually or asexually, it doesn't really matter. And last but not least, excretion, so releasing toxic and harmful substances from the organism. We will talk about it more when we move to cell division and membrane transport. That's actually the function that you should just know right now. Now we are mentioning cell reproduction and differentiation. In our guide, we have written that specialized tissues can develop by cell differentiation in a multicellular organism. Differentiation involves the expression of some genes and not others in cell genomes. So that basically sums it up. Both cell reproduction and differentiation are absolutely crucial to the well-being of the cell. What reproduction allows is cell growth and replacement of dead slash damaged cells. However, differentiation process is the result of the expression of specific genes and not the others, as our guide says. So each cell has all the genetic material to produce an organism, but it will become a specific type of cell depending on which DNA segment becomes active. It might be not the case in cancer cells that undergo extremely rapid reproduction with very little or improper differentiation, and that is their problem. So, as I mentioned, stem cells are also just briefly mentioned, but they will be covered in more detail once we arrive at mitosis and meiosis. Today, just the basics. The capacity of stem cells to divide and differentiate along different pathways is necessary in embryonic development and also makes stem cells suitable for therapeutic uses. So that's the definition we have in our study guide. And what does it actually mean? So, there are populations within our organisms of cells that retain the ability to divide and differentiate into various types. Those are stem cells. They are present in stomatic tissue in plant cells, which is near root or stem tips. We will also be mentioning that in chapter about plants, but that will be a long time from now. <laughs> um, the tricky thing is that they cannot be distinguished by appearance and that poses significant problems in their, their differentiation from other cells. We currently use them to treat, among those the previously mentioned, Stuttgart's disease, 
which leads to blindness and is a very serious one. However, we also have many controversies around them and those are also acknowledged by our IB study guide. So uh, there are very serious ethical issues involved in stem, in stem cell research, whether the death of early stage embryos is ethically proper. Research of stem cells requires, in some cases, the death of early stage embryos. And therefore, we should be mindful that in some cultures, there might be significant ethical obstacles regarding that matter. So, just something to think about. We also have our TOK question, which I will be asking you at the end of this episode. Now we move on to more technical issues, and that is light and electron microscope and magnification. So first of all, what is the actual difference between light microscope and electron microscope? Light microscope uses light to form an image, whereas electron microscope uses a stream of electron passing through a specimen. So those are the basic differences. However, we also have more. Light microscope is very inexpensive to purchase and operate. You probably have or had those in your schools or wherever you are currently studying. However, electron microscopes are very expensive to purchase and operate. They require specific eligibility of the operator to know how to use them and are quite complex. Moving back to light microscope, they are very simple and easy when it comes to specimen preparation. An electron microscope, as you might already know, are complex and lengthy in specimen preparation. However, with complexity come great benefits, as electron microscope magnifies over 500,000 times, whereas light microscope magnifies up to 2,000 times. So that's a great difference. How to calculate magnification? It's a very important skill and I recommend you try it out because it's important when you write your internal assessment and it's important when you write your paper one, two and three. It will really come in handy. So the formula is size of an image divided by size of a specimen. Pretty simple, just remember that. We are almost finished with the episode. However, there are two things we need to talk about. And first is surface area to volume ratio. So why do cells not grow to larger sizes? We mentioned that algae are an exception to cell theory as they are very large and composed of one cell. So why do they not actually grow to larger sizes? It's very important to understand. There is the principle of surface area to volume ratio that limits its growth. And why is that? So on the volume of the cell depend many processes, among them rates of heat and waste production and resource consumption, etc. So in very simple wording, the bigger the cell is, the more expensive in maintenance it is, more food it requires, and therefore more materials needs to be used and moved in and out of it through the surface. So if we have a large volume, we also require a large surface area. So large cells, however, have less surface area to bring the materials in and get rid of them. They cope with that by changing shape into long and thin cells, 
or increasing the surface area by infolding and outfolding the air membrane. And that's it. That's the whole surface area to volume ratio. Pretty simple if we explain it like that, isn't it? Okay, and the last aspect is multicellular organism. It's probably a thing you already know. So we can have organism composed of one cell or many cells. And an organism composed of one cell is called a unicellular organism. Whereas the organism composed of many cells is a multicellular organism. And multicellular organism consists of many cells. However, unicellular organisms consist of only one cell and carry out all functions of life in that cell. So multicellular organism must have specific char characteristics and those are highly specialized cells organized into tissue and organs, differentiated by expressing only particular genes. And from IB guide we have a phrase that says multicellular organisms have properties that emerge from the interaction of their cellular components and those properties are called emergent properties. Why? They arise from the interactions of component parts. So basically the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's it. We have covered the first chapter of the IB biology syllabus. Thank you very much for your attention and now we have a question from our theory of knowledge for you to ponder this night if you didn't have anything else to worry about when you go to sleep. So, there is a difference between the living and the non-living environment. How are we able to know the difference? Thank you very much and see you next Sunday.